Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Influx podcast. My name is Corey West, and I'm the newest addition to the Influx team, serving as your podcast co-host to the one and only, my partner in crime, Belle Duffner. Today's episode, Belle and I sit down with Denise Pilar, the UX research expert and our newest addition to the SCAD UX faculty. Tune in as we talk all things UX research, AI development, and more. And just remember, you can listen to previous and future Influx episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Influx. It is me, Belle, and also now a new co-host, Corey. Hi, everybody. My name is Corey West. I am the fifth generation, fourth generation. Almost, I think fourth or fifth. I can't count. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think fourth. 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 Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is my second quarter here at SCAD, um, and I'm super excited. Yeah. So now it's really just, what is it called? I don't want to say fresh meat, but like... <laughs> <laughs> undergrad but it's it's right now purely an undergrad podcast now which is crazy and also probably gives us a lot more nervous itching questions yeah people um and a really big learning opportunity and today we have an uh, amazing a very very special guest <laughs> denise pilar introduce yourself hey hi everyone my name is denise pilar i'm a new professor at scad it's also my second quarter and uh, my specialty is UX research. Uh, well, I guess I'll tell more. I was going to say, go. yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, to continue to, for you to introduce yourself, who are you? What do you do? You're kind of answer those. But especially, what has been your career journey? What has led you to here now at SCAD? If you can give us in, like a little brief wrap-up. Yeah. It's, uh, I would say, not an usual or, well, in terms of UX research, there is no usual so far. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, uh, my background is computer science. I did my um, undergrad and my master's degrees in computer science. And um, and then I started uh, my PhD also in computer science. And I took self cognitive science classes and uh, perception and memory. And I just fell in love with that. Um, and then I attended a, a seminar on uh, user-centered design. This was back in like uh, that. What it's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and uh, and I said, well, that's what I want to do for life. You know, I've yeah. always liked what I did, but uh, you know, it was not really my thing. I was super concerned with why systems were so hard for people to use. And uh, and then I decided to follow that. So I interrupted my uh, studies for a few years because I was then living in Belgium and moved back to Brazil, had a child, moved to the U.S. <laughs> Couldn't do it. Well, like my studies in here. So when I went back to Brazil, I resumed my Ph.D. then in the psychology department. And, uh, and from there, when I finished, I started working at SAP and, you know, ever since I've been doing UX. That's very cool. I think, Denise, I think you're kind of in the same boat of, like, so many people in this industry. I think, like, hardly anyone really, like, starts out in UX. Everyone kind of starts out in, you know, a somewhat, like, different related field, and then you kind of, like, get a foot in UX, and then I think so many people kind of fall in love with 
with this with this industry and kind of how interconnected everything is um so yeah it, it's really cool to kind of hear hear how you got here with us <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so then your first foot through the door with ux was tapping in with uh sap you said uh well besides the the yes rewind a little bit yeah no, no ux research yes mm. but uh ux in general uh no uh so when i came to the us it was uh the year 2000 um I uh, started working as a UI designer, uh, UI engineer, I would call it. (laughs) 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 And then um, I would work more or less like being a liaison between engineering and production, content production. Mm -hmm. Or a a company called FindLaw, it still exists, and uh, it's now part of the Thomson Reuters group. And it was kind of port- like a, a portal about legal stuff okay. that had three target audiences, uh, the lawyers, law firms, and general people. So they would change the content accordingly in uh, content and also option. And um, after that, when I went back to Brazil, I resumed my PhD. And so when, when I finished, I started at SAP doing uh, UI design for two, almost two years. And then 2009, I started, I had all this training in proper training uh, in UX research and uh, which is, was kind of easy because it has everything to do with this psychology, experimental psychology that I had learned uh, in my uh, grad studies. And then after that, I never stopped. And so um, and I stayed at SAP until 20. 21, 14 years. Yeah, only a month. Yeah, it's a long, long chart. <laughs> and uh, and I learned so much uh, about UX itself and also about um, other industries and then how to apply. But going back to the uh, the multidisciplinarity of the, the career, that mm-hmm. the UX uh, universe, I'd say, uh, and that's what makes it so interesting, isn't it? Uh, because we need all those perspectives. Mm-hmm. And uh, so far we don't have, or we didn't have uh, uh, one uh, program that offered to prepare a person in all this, like bringing all these perspectives to one uh, program. And that's what SCAD is trying to do now or with the new BFA in Research. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested to prod a lot into your background in psychology, especially how did it translate over? Because you said you gained a lot of experience with, with psychology um, and it applied to how then you learned and looked at the perspective of user research. Can you give some moments or just tell us, you know, that transition of thought? From, from psychology to science to psychology? Psychology, psychology to you back. Yeah, to you. Okay, okay. Um, it's, uh, it's not uh, something that you could give a specific example but you know uh as i was telling my interaction design students it's just being aware of things that like how humans work uh interfere with your design decisions like for instance if you know that you cannot pay attention to more like it's a limited resource and you cannot pay attention to more than one thing at a time you can make design decisions differently taking that knowledge into account so you won't overcrowd your interfaces or uh, you want to make people have a hard time 
focusing on a specific element that they need to make a decision. So, uh, yeah, examples that are very, very relevant are mental models or uh, about the cognitive load and what cognitive friction would be and uh, memory, of course. You know, what people can remember, I, I, when I make a design decision, I, if I know how memory works, I can use that to put less or more stuff on the screen and, um, and also don't require that people remember things that I showed five screens ago. Right. So it's more or less like that. It's not something too, to say, translatable, but it's it, things that after you saw, you can't unsee them. Make sense? Yeah. So, uh, so I think a lot of people love to throw on this term in user research, which is ethicality, you know, the eth like the ethics of research. But um, there's, I mean, in, in science and especially in the world of science, it's very literal. Um, it, it relies on facts as it is, especially. Mm -hmm. But I'd love for you to give your stance on what makes research ethical? What makes user research specifically mm -hmm. ethical? That's a very good topic and very relevant, uh, especially now that we have so many ways to get into people's lives and uh and ethics basically is uh what you do when nobody's watching you right mm -hmm. so uh you know why you do things if you're doing because you really uh, believe in them and you think it's correct that that's it so things that you would not like people doing to you you don't do to others mm -hmm. and in uh, other words that's what ethics would be and in user research, is, uh, it's very important because uh, we need to learn about people in order to create products and services that work well for them and that make them happy. But uh, there are lines that we must not cross because that would be would interfere with their own um, free will, mm -hmm. let's say. And, and we see people doing a lot. And I use, I like to use this Netflix example a lot because they have this, uh, this feature that goes automatically into the uh, next episode. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you have to pause it. <laughs> it's intended to make people binge watch. Yeah. Yeah. And, but that's not good for people, mm -hmm. you know, and, and they use this knowledge because it means uh, more success for them as a company. But for people, this is not good because sometimes you like you are watching a show that you really enjoy, and then you take just one more episode <laughs> from more, and then after you see you spend three four hours watching something, and you had something else in, like important to do. You had a deadline. You had uh, you had just had to sleep, and then you don't do. So this is not good for people. I feel so called out for that. <laughs> <laughs> And that's another girl. I mean, and they are using this because they found out about people's motivations and desires. If they are playing that, they're using that for, you know, evil purposes. I'd say, oh, I may get in trouble because of this. <laughs> no, no, I would say that's very much the dark side of UX yeah. or would even constitute that as. Yeah, no, definitely the dark side of UX. I definitely think companies will where you know whether in ux or not the companies will do pretty much anything they can to get you know more user retention user money you know really really anything and so i definitely think it's like 
it's a blessing and a curse at the same time, you know. Um, it's a double, it's a double-edged sword for sure. I think Denise, going back to like the Netflix thing, you know, when Netflix like rolled out these features that you were talking about, they like went into people's homes to see how like people watch TV. So I guess as like a UX research expert, how do you, how far do you go? Um, like let's say like with your with your work at SAP Labs or or even here, like how how far do you go to really understand your user? Uh, the answer is it depends. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it depends on the goal, the research goal. Uh, and the, this is, the research goal has to be the North Star. You know why you're doing this research, what you want to learn and what for. And that should guide your decisions. And uh, when we're talking about companies, some companies that are more aware of what they can get out of that metric, mm -hmm. they invest more in research because it's expensive to have, you know, qualified professionals go to people's home and observe them for two, three days. This is like doing real ethnography studies. It's not uh, something uh, quick and easy and, and cheap. But uh, then you can learn more about people than you would in other methods. So where's the balance, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's why uh, some methods like contextual research or contextual inquiry were created specifically for the UX industry, where you adapt things that come from ethnography, for instance, but you you create some uh, specific limitations, like in terms of time or in terms of uh, the structure of your interview uh, guides, and then you tailor that to match your objective, but in a in a more restricted or focused way. So uh, I think that's that's the the trick. You have a very clear goal. You have a very clear um, focus, and th then you can do ethical stuff. And just to like combine the ethics with uh, this topic, um, if you learn like from the medical industry, the pharmaceutical industry, or psychology, uh, there are many. Ethics is very strong already. There are procedures and uh, guidelines for what is okay and what's not. And we should learn from them. I think we are learning from them and trying to see, like, if you are going to use, do studies with children, uh, you know, there are other things to consider. And you have to get the parents to agree. And then how, may, how much time you can spend with them is different. So we need to go to these areas that are more... Uh, stable or have been there for longer and learn from them. Okay. Yeah. Love the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I agree. <laughs> Definitely. There's like, a, I think um, UX has gone, grown so much, I think, especially in like the last, you know, 10 years. And I, I think it's just going to continue to grow. And so I think, I, I think you're right. Like, there's a, definitely a lot to learn still. Um, but I, hopefully, hopefully we're heading in the right direction here, but <laughs> Almost, especially for pharmaceuticals, especially, especially for like pharmaceutical, I would say reserved or conservative, uh, when it comes down to, uh, their equipment that they use, their methods that they use, exactly. but it's very hard to change that process too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With AI now, we're going to hear and see a lot of discussions about you know, what is ethical? What is mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think that with AI, going on just a little side tangent, <laughs> yeah. do you think people are going to separate a little bit from the ethics of, do you think people are going to probably, because 
I'm trying to word this, of course, because it's it's such a new integration to society. I mean, it's a massive boom. But do you think that with technologies in the way, uh, to just be able to type an entire essay or ask, hey, can you conduct all this research? Do you think that there might be a room for possible error or or companies turning to the, the easier budget option? They're already trying. There is something that they are offering that is like a user research without the users. Heard that. I saw that. It's like, it's not big sense. Oh, no. That's researching a big game. That's that's not it. I mean, there is a benefit and there is a purpose. I think it, like with any technology that have uh, that was ever discovered um, or created, this is something that can be uh, good and can be used in a good way. But you know, we have to understand it better, see uh, how we can benefit, and and how we humans can adapt. And uh, going to your uh, question about the essays, let's say use that example. Uh, I saw uh, uh, it was like a bad talk, but a lot really from uh, one professor that I had in Brazil, and he. Uh, Compared, he made an analysis of this chat GPT. So he interviews people, like famous people, authors, uh, celebrities in Brazil. So um, he did. Uh, he took three of his interviews and pick one question he asked to this uh, brilliant people, and he asked the same question to chat GPT, and then he analyzed their responses side by side. And the thing is. The answer that comes from uh, ChatGPT is not bad, it's correct, but it's average. Yeah. And the answer that you get from the this people that have, uh, uh, let's say, a, a life that is full of meaning and experiences, yeah. then you get a brilliant answer. So that's the thing, you know, uh, humans are the only creatures that are able to imagine. And we bring this imagination and creativity to create brilliant stuff. And technology, uh, we can transfer knowledge to technology, but we cannot transfer imagination. Yeah. And that never will, because this, this is something that we build, and every person is unique, depending on your life history. So uh, that's my, my view, at least. So I think that, yes, it does have a purpose. It can contribute, but we... We, yeah, I was going to say, we have to kind of set those barriers and kind of keep it in line, I think. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I, oh, my gosh. I could, like, literally talk about AI for hours. Absolutely. I love the way you humanized it, though. That's very important. Humans are beautiful creatures. They are complex creatures, and that's what makes it so wonderful. Especially, it's like hearing a response that's been crafted out of definite... Experience and emotion and, like, empathy for, for people, yeah. There's a book, it's called, uh, read it if you want, it's uh, entertaining. It's called um, Humans Are Underrated. Uh, it's not a, a small book, but it's really, it talks about it, and it's has a few years already, so it was before ChatGPT. It's very interesting. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I'll check that out. <laughs> um, yeah, so Denise, I guess going back to research, I think a lot of uh, you know people getting into UX, especially students here. I think we're we're kind of like afraid of research a little bit. We're we're afraid to kind of dive deep into it. So, for you, what is what is like fundamental to really good um, 
like hard, heavy research, but also like, how do we get into that as students without, I guess, being intimidated by it? Um, and how do we do that in like an ethical way? Kind of how, how we were talking before. Yeah. I think the important thing is to get a good foundation first. You have to understand, uh, methodology. I mean, you don't need to be an expert, but you need to understand what it's for and what's the role of every thing you do. And then, um, you know, we have to get rid of some assumptions that we have, like research takes too much time. Research is expensive. You need to be, uh, to have a PhD to be able to do research and all that stuff. And, um, uh, and it's too much work and all that. And that's a good example where ChatGPT or AI tools would help, uh, to analyze data or to get this data that it is a mass, uh, immense amount of knowledge that it it has to get you to the secondary research. So I, I think if you could summarize enough in one sentence, research is about to first understand where you're at and get all the information you can about what is already available uh, about your problem or a challenge. And then from that, define what you want to learn and then go to the field and get from primary research and from a from the source directly from people, the information that is missing. And that's it. You know, that's basically it. And there are tons of methods out there. And the, the, it's better to know the principles and then use other stuff to get the best method. And, um, and then use the tools uh, that are available to help you with analyzing. And of course, you have to be able to then look at the data with a critical eye and, and get to the insights. That's challenging. But uh, never start from the method. That's it. It's very common also to see people say, oh, I've been doing usability testing and uh, I'm good at that or it's good. It's a good method. It is, but it doesn't uh, serve every purpose. True. Yeah, that's difficult to, because you always see people going. And, and like, I I guess it's, it's sometimes better to to see people want to go to user research because then that shows that they are constantly thinking about the user first not that it's always needed of course and i think that that can lead to common mistakes but at least that's a good practice because it's easier to to be uh you know empathetic user thinking mm -hmm. and then be able to work with and have like maybe your team lead be like hey let's turn it back for a second yeah but like in this respect just Thinking about the user first is an evolution, and that's good. That's really good. We are at a much better place today than we were 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but then we can get a lot of information about this user or target audience from secondary data because people have already done. And so there are information out there sometimes, like the basics you can get and then do it. It saves time and saves money and saves uh, energy. So, yeah. And, um, you know, I wrote the book with two other uh, colleagues about UX research in Brazil, and uh, we called it you know, like free uh, translation UX research with a Brazilian accent. But uh, in, in English, you don't have, I think, probably a Brazilian way or something like that. Um, and uh, the, this Brazilian accent thing was actually how to... Uh, what can be flexibilized in a user research project? And uh, because, you know, 
sometimes or oftentimes you can't do things by the book exactly as like follow a method or do a uh, define, create a plan, a study exactly as it's described. So there are some things that you have to adapt and some things are adaptable, but some, some things are not. And then uh, what we intended with the book was to help people be prepared to make those decisions case by case. And that's trick with UX. And I think that's also true for design. Uh, there is no cookbook. You have to make many, many decisions every time. And the way that those um, you can make your job easier is to develop a larger repertoire of uh, methods, techniques, and uh, other stuff that comes from other areas. Mm -hmm. Like well, we were talking about ethics, learn from other industries that are more mature and then bring in here. We do that in UX as well. So the larger your repertoire is, the better you uh, are uh, equipped to make good decisions. And that's the thing with UX research, you know. There is too much to adapt every time. But you can always find something that works for your context. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, it is a lot. Word for that book to finally be published. Let me tell you. Yeah, and in the industry, you'll see uh, sometimes you have one person or two people only in the UX department. They have to do research and they don't have a budget or they have to not enough time. And then the users are not available. What do you do? Mm -hmm. You have to have a clear goal and have that guide you. Then you make the decisions. Always think, well, will this give me that? Yeah, that's cool. It's really, it's really interesting to kind of just hear about your process, you know, and how, how like you go about research. And, and like you said, you, you kind of have to have like a well-rounded basis of methodologies. And I think your background in psychology is like so, so valuable for research too, because I think the center of, of UX is understanding people and psychology <laughs> is really, really understanding people and, and really kind of like taking that down to the very, very like nitty gritty detail of stuff. So I, I think that's that's really interesting to, to hear your perspective on it. Yeah. And also, and, uh, psychology gives us a uh, ability to better understand individuals. But then we need anthropology to understand individuals in context. Mm -hmm. And that's where uh, uh, we we like can benefit a lot from the social science, anthropology and sociology we need them to understanding cultures because that's also something that makes uh, a big difference on the way people use their uh, products and services. I love that. Um, so I want to prod into one of your other publishings, of course. Um, the What's the impact of local cultures on the user experience of software solutions? You define and use the key term um, customer culture. And I guess taking a break from, from users and focusing on customers, especially, what is customer culture? Can you explain it? And what's the importance of its existence? Uh, yeah, it is, it is important because, you know, uh, then we, we have to consider that marketing is a much more mature industry and they have done a good job with uh, research and creating this uh, customer uh, culture and expectations and, and everything. And, uh, but it goes all the way through the, uh, 
moment of purchase or decision, uh, purchasing decision. And then after that, he's kind of uh, left alone. But then um, we, as well, we discussed in class, customer uh, is not always the same person as the user. And uh, especially in the, uh, in the corporate world, many times the, the people or uh, departments that make the purchasing decisions are not the same that we, we use. So, uh, and they have a big influence because, you know, they decide. So if it's not, you know, something that works for the user, too bad for the user. Mm -hmm. uh, so we should, I think, and, and we perhaps have a, a, a quite some way to go uh, before we, we work better with customers because it, UX has been, you know, working on developing and, and getting stronger and focusing on the user. But then to some extent, it seems that we are working to pamper the users and to give them everything they want. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case. Uh, and, and now we see like the emergence of UX strategy, which is a discipline that is, uh, combines or is there to be a li liaison between, uh, design and, uh, business because we serve a purpose as well. Uh -huh. uh, we do applied research. UX research is applied research, so it has to serve a purpose. And this purpose comes from the business that are creating products and services. And, um, so, uh, if we understand that better, and that also something that we need to take into account when we make our design decisions or the research that will serve this design, because, uh, we have to understand that yes, we want the users to be happy and satisfied, but, uh, not at the cost of a company. Mm -hmm. So, uh, finding that balance is a, is a challenge and we need to understand more, more about all the cultural aspects involved. And that means the local cultures, the corporate cultures, uh, the sometimes niche cultures, like we are talking Netflix, let's bring that forward. Example today, uh, Netflix has very specific target groups mm -hmm. and you see that they uh tailored their contents to these groups and even the way things work so um but it's only one company so how you balance that mm -hmm. that's definitely food for thought <laughs> yeah oh, yeah <laughs> Another thing, Denise, that we're, we're really curious to almost kind of kind of wrap everything up with, um, we want to see, like, we were talking about AI a little bit, but what do you see as the future for UX research? Um, do you have an opinion on it? Uh, what is your opinion on it? And kind of what do you see? What do you see? <laughs> we're glad. <laughs> yeah, what, what do you see for the future in, in UX research? Uh, I think... And this is something that, uh, I mean, in an ideal world, uh, there would, there wouldn't be UX a separate, like a separate department or a separate, uh, competency in a, in a company. Uh, ideally companies would be so mature that, you know, everybody would have that in mind and they would have researchers that would do all kinds of research. Uh, just the difference would be having research methodology expertise or skills, but, um, 
couldn't be any kind of research. And uh, and then UX being like the DNA of the companies. But I don't know if this is ever possible, you know, or uh, if I don't think we have a, any company in this day today that is uh, like really, really 100% mature. Because we are transitioning from, um, if you look at historically, people used to do everything themselves. Then there was the industries, and then it was already a mindset shift. And we haven't completed that yet to industrial. Uh, yes. What's the word? <laughs> to like assembly line stuff to now, and then it's all focused on information. And actually, it was focused on information, but we are already shifting to focusing on the connectivity. And then what is next? Uh, then AI comes into the picture. Yeah. That's going to change a lot. So uh, the thing is, technology evolves too fast. It's like an exponential line. And we humans, we evolve in a... Much more linear line, I feel like. Yeah. And Blackberry yeah uh, pace so we are not able to keep up with all technology that we have and just that will delay i think this maturity uh evolution but ideally i think it would be something that everybody simply understands and and it's part of it and does that well it's okay but what if I don't know, but I think it's a little bit topical. I'd, I'd say my hot take is that AI is being overhyped, as, as oh, one yeah. say. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, I think when it comes to humans, if there's something big and revolutionary, there's groups of people that are immediately like, you know, using AI to write probably some of the dumbest things. My father the other day was trying to figure out like to get the AI voices making like Snoop Dogg oh, have yeah. a, a, pre a presidential inauguration mm -hmm. speech. Yeah, I think it's it's like really, no, it's it's, it's, it's it's really dangerous because you can you can make things like seem apparent that that aren't real at all. Um, and I, I like you were saying, I'm so glad that humans are kind of on a, a much more gradual yeah. curve because I like I want us to like hold technology back a little bit because I, I don't think we're like ready for for everything that we're we're like creating, you know. Yeah. Um, like, I think we kind of maybe need to, like, I feel like during COVID, it was it was almost like a blessing because I feel like the whole world was kind of put on pause for a little bit. I, I think we needed that. Um, I almost feel like we're trying to, like, rev back up to catch back up again. And I think we just need to ease into it. And one thing that I think is really, really important here is, like, we need to be able to do this pause and put things in perspective. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at history, you'll see that this happened kind of many times before. When the books were invented, like press, so at first people felt overwhelmed. So I'll never be able to read all the books. And now, of course, you were not, but then you would be able to choose the books you read. And then, you know, when there was uh, like this cloning uh, technology, oh my goodness, now man is trying to become God and all that. <laughs> yeah. And of course, there are people that try to use this for evil purposes, mm -hmm. you know. That's why um, we have to, like, bring other perspectives that there must be regulation and we need to think about ethics and all that. And after a while, things just, you know, accommodate. 
And then with the uh, information era or with um, now the AI, we'll see that. At first, you're going so scared, like the deep fakes thing. And then uh, this is bad. You know, it changed uh, elections in many places. So, and, and that's dangerous. But after a while, we learn how to handle and deal with that as well. It's a, it's a pendulum. We have both extremities being, you know, one for good, one for bad, and then the gray area when we actually understand it. And then we're starting to, to go not along the, the gradual, it's like upwards path, but the linear, like you're saying. Yeah, I believe. I think the key is always to find this moderation, this middle uh, cap. Right. Not to be too scared and desperate or not to be over enthusiastic about any new stuff, you know. Yeah. Back so, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, it's to, to finalize all this, um, do you want to ask a question? Yeah, yeah. So, Denise, this is, oh my gosh, I'm so, I need to hear this, <laughs> this answer. <laughs> Do you have any advice for for people entering the UX field or it can be really college students in general, but um, or just anyone, anyone entering in UX, like what advice do you have to them? Do you have anything, um, you know, in your experience that has really just carried you through or anything that a little piece of piece of advice you would leave us? Uh, I I have a few. Okay, Mm -hmm. I think the first and most important one is never stop being curious and, you know, questioning stuff things always have other stuff that you're not seeing and this is good for research or design and you know when you look at this it's always more than what you can see you have to be curious and question and and question even your own impressions because you know uh we can be wrong or we can be partial we can be seeing something that is not complete or not even true and our job uh, as UX designers or UX researchers is to find out uh, as much as we can about the whole picture to like, it's kind of uh, investigative, like you know, a murder uh, investigation. <laughs> UX equals murder investigation. <laughs> the good part of that is no crime and nobody dies for it. <laughs> it's totally sad. And yeah, be curious, be questioning and never give up, you know, because we have to be persistent. We, we face a lot of uh, Nose, you know, you have to get used mm-hmm. to the nose and don't take no for an answer. There's always a way to do something. So cool. Thank you very much. Well, Denise, we were so, so thankful to have you on. Thank you for sharing all of your experience and, and expertise with us. We're, we were so thankful and we're, we're excited to have you at SCAD and kind of see, see what the future holds for, for all of us together. And yeah, thank you for sharing everything with us. Thank you. I'm also very excited to be part of this adventure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was really fun to be. Good. Absolutely. That's cool. a wrap. <laughs>